Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is Nick Cull. And I'm, sorry, I'm a professor at uh, University of Southern California, and I specialize in the connections between culture and foreign policy. And Prof, is it true that the real official title of the university is the University of Spoilt Children? <laughs> no, no, no. University of Summer Construction. Oh, Anytime <laughs> they'll, build, they'll build some new, new, uh, uh, incredibly tasteful uh, building on a on a former piece of uh, a car park or something. So, uh, uh, or suicidal cyclists. University of Suicidal Cyclists. We find that. Uh, uh, yeah, this is where uh, students have fun in the sun on bicycles, riding very fast and updating Twitter as they go. Wow. So that just shows the productivity of certain things. <laughs> Amazing, really. So you're working on, on culture, international relations, diplomacy, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I pull all those three together. And can you tell us, perhaps with reference to those issues, perhaps not, What's preoccupying you, dynamizing you, interesting you right now? Well, right now, um, as with your listeners, I'm you know living the winter of 2024 with uh, a new climate record being shattered each day, and uh, I think that what what the the even though the political news is hair raising. When you hear that the scientists are planning to add a category six to the five category model of um, hurricane uh, uh, strength, because hurricanes are just an extra one stronger, I mean that that that, that should surely give us give us pause. It made me think the announcement made me think a little bit about uh, Spinal Tap asking for uh, you know uh, loudspeakers that went up to eleven, but you know when we're talking about hurricanes and they're coming at force uh, six that's really um uh very scary and i'm kind of puzzled why there isn't more uh alarm about this um uh, but so that's uh, preoccupying me though though it's not what i'm writing about at the moment so no sure and uh, it would be silly if the only things we wrote about were those that preoccupied us even though there can be connections, whether they are obvious or, or latent at times, right? And I, th- I was thinking of Spinal Tap when you mentioned the ratcheting up, ratcheting up to level six. Uh, but I guess the other thing to realize is that there is still a tendency in the United States especially to regard what we might call excessive weather events as unrelated to climate change. And mm-hmm. if you're a meteorologist on television who dares to put your head up and say what the truth is, you get denounced uh, by well-heeled social media messengers, well-heeled because they're funded by think tanks that are themselves funded by extractive corporations and Republican madmen. However, Mm -hmm. this is not what we're here to talk about today, Prof. But (laughs) in terms of international relations and culture, the environment is becoming part of, I would have thought, the portfolio of a country in its credentials internationally. Would that be a fair thing to say? I think that's, that's a very astute observation. We know that countries are judged in the international environment based on how they measure up 
to global reckoning of whether you're good or not. And um, over the last hundred years, the measure of goodness in the world, the measure of virtue, has shifted. Uh, at some points in the early 20th century, you just had to be good for your own people. And if you were a place where language and culture and uh, the frontiers all matched up nicely, you could be um, uh, working well and uh, meeting the international standards quite quite easily. Uh, we then began looking at absolute standards of human rights. Um, but I think now, if you want to be seen as a good country, you have to be not only looking after people, but looking after the environment too. And, you know, one of the telltale signs that things had shifted was um, I took a look at some of the messages, the last messages sent out by Osama bin Laden. And he'd been denouncing the United States for all kinds of things throughout his career. But by the end, it was issues of climate and the environment that he was hammering away on, which suggests um, both that he thought that that was a weakness of the United States, and he thought it was something that his audience would would care about. So, you know, we have to look to the debates that are happening in the world for guidance. And um, when uh, even somebody who's been so uh, absorbed in a particular discourse, in his case around uh, around uh, Islamic extremism, to see him shifting into a uh, into an environmental language uh, must tell us that the world is um, the world is is changing, and these issues are becoming important, and must be a warning shot to a country that doesn't take environmental issues seriously, because you will be not only badly judged by the future, but are being badly judged right now. Right now, an interesting point in that, of course. The decision to attack the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and not the Statue of Liberty in 2001 was partly, no doubt, about killing more people, but it was also about symbols of finance capitalism and U.S. militarism. And I, I think that point is often lost in the dominant U.S. discourse of saying we were attacked because we're the symbol of freedom. And also... Yes. I mean, the symbol par excellence of that is the French gift to the United States of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. No interest to Bin Laden. Well, Bin Laden used to say if, if, he, if he was an enemy of freedom, he would have attacked Sweden. That what he was an enemy of was the American presence in the world. And then he would list off things that he uh, disliked the United States doing. Yeah. And number one was supporting um, what he called the apostate regimes. So that would be uh, people like Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, uh, King Hussein in Jordan, uh, uh, leaders that he disagreed with, uh, and then support for Israel, and then uh, the Americans having um, troops on uh, Islamic land. So this was how he expressed it. He didn't really talk about freedom. It was uh, the U.S. government which would say, oh, this is all about freedom and uh, the Middle East not liking our, uh, who we are culturally. Um, it was much more expressed. If you look at what they were saying, it was much more expressed politically, who uh, the dislike was more uh, political than cultural. And Prof, some of your past work includes amongst many books and articles, but especially many books, 
a history of the United States Information Service. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Pardon me. Sorry for the cough. And how it fell away with the end of the Cold War. Yes, that's true. I, I, I did two books, one on the success of the United States Information Agency and how they were able to tell America's story to the world during the Cold War years and um, did a terrific job. And then there's the second volume is about how when the Cold War came to an end, the US government kind of um, felt that uh, talking to the world was no longer a priority, or rather that the commercial sector could do that, that CNN and Disney could tell America's story and uh, the information agency is, uh, loses money and eventually just gets folded into the Department of, of, of State. And I don't believe that having an information agency would have prevented 9-11 but I do believe it would have really helped on 9-12 if there had been uh, a whole cadre of American diplomats who were able to speak to newspapers in the Middle East, but also communicate what they were hearing about Arab public opinion and uh, Muslim public opinion back to the United States and worn away from particular, um, from particular uh, foreign policy um, uh, trajectories. And... If we go back, 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 it, it really under, I think I'm right in saying, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that it was under the Clinton administration that a lot of this, you know, peace dividend, I suppose, yes, was obtained. But the Republicans wanted to defund all manner of cultural agency in the United States, mm -hmm. including the overseas service, right? And mm -hmm. then suddenly they decided they had to do something in the during the first George W. Bush administration, they were worried that their problem was that they didn't have a good cultural image in the world. And some of them thought that the issue of Hollywood in particular posed a problem because it showed the United States to be a decadent culture. Do I have that right? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, well, there was a, a um, an idea that maybe Hollywood could become a, a um, auxiliary of the U.S. government that it could tell stories that could uh, could help the American uh, the American cause. And uh, when representatives of the Bush administration came out to Hollywood, first thing they were told is there's this thing called the First Amendment. Uh, we'll do whatever we want to do, and maybe it'll align with you. But if it does, it's because that's what we want to do. And so they had to uh, readjust their. Uh, expectations. I think it makes more sense to think of Hollywood as a as an ally of the United States government, which sometimes helps when when its interests align, and sometimes it can be um, it can be a uh, a problem. Uh, the the most um, uh, I think th one of the things that the Bush administration did was it created a special radio station to make American popular music and Arab popular music available in the Middle East, with but with an American written news in Arabic, Radio Sawa. And they attempted to create a, a television service, which took a while to get going. That could they, they wanted it to be a rival of Al Jazeera, uh, and a lot of resources went into uh, into that. It, oh no, obviously some, something happened it didn't, these things uh, came into existence 
Um, but I don't think that they were the winning um, uh, gesture uh, in a, a media war against extreme Islam. To me, what, what succeeded is cooperating with regimes and governments in that region and working with the people who really knew. So my work right now, I, I well, teach public diplomacy. And I think if you want to succeed communicating in the world today, it's not about what you say as much as who do you empower. And the successful strategies to me are the ones where uh, governments are helping other people speak for themselves rather than lecturing on on how things ought to be uh, from their own point of view. So now you'll be sick of answering this question, but you'll have a pat response that's very good. WTF is public diplomacy, Prof. <laughs> I say this. Oh, right. Well, public diplomacy is that part of diplomacy which works by engaging a foreign public. So it doesn't have to be a, uh, you know, typically governments um, conduct diplomacy, manage the international environment by engaging with other governments. But the world is changing and wise governments have always understood that you don't only need to talk to governments, you also need to engage with people. Mm-hmm. And to me, there have historically been five major ways in which governments have engaged with people. And the most important way of doing it, of engaging a foreign public, is listening to that public, not necessarily telling them anything, but get, gathering information from them and thinking seriously about who they are and what they want. And if you don't go through that first step, everything you do is going to misfire. So first stage is listening. The second element, advocacy, explaining who you are, explaining what your policies are, what you believe in. Third approach, culture, taking your culture, making it available, bringing people together in a cultural event, sharing a cultural skill that your country or your um, the body you represent is well known for. And that might be your language or your cuisine. Fourthly, exchanges, bringing people together through education or through uh, some other kind of um, experience of, of shared life to see things differently. And, and finally, international broadcasting, where you're using journalism to uh, establish a picture of the world in a credible way for an international audience. And I can find um, wise governments all the way back to Roman times have used elements of this public diplomacy toolbox. Uh, But I think it remains important in the world today. Um, What's unfortunate today is how the information space has become much more hostile, much more uncertain, um, much more embattled with um, the impact of social media and government intervention in social media space. So I'm thinking about disinformation, uh, new levels of propaganda coming from inside countries as different factions attack each other and coming from uh, bad actors internationally who see their best interest being in sowing uh, dissent and disruption. 
uh, and to me, that makes public diplomacy all the more important in um, uh, our contemporary environment. And would examples in international broadcasting of doing this the right way be Deutsche Welle, France 24, uh, the BBC World Service? Yeah, I think so. I think what's important is to have values and those values should include being critical of your of your country of origin if people are interested in the country of origin and uh, bbc deutsche welle have a long tradition of being prepared to to do that to criticize um their uh home governments and to um uh, reach out and show by example they're not going to lecture on what uh, Western democratic values are rather they're going to perform them by saying you need multiple sources on a story uh, and um, nobody's perfect and I, I think that in the long run that's appreciated and uh, sharing bad news not just describing the world in terms of uh, superlatives and how fantastic you're doing um, talking about the negatives is incredibly important and in US terms what about things like Voice of America and away from broadcasting enterprises, initiatives such as the Fulbright Scheme and cultural exchanges going sure. back to well, the I, Soviet Union? Well, I see those as having considerable integrity. But as a historian of Voice of America, I have to say that it has to be defended. Uh, each generation has a fight over that and both uh, governments of both parties have attempted from time to time to skew uh, the management of Voice of America and the journalists have to uh, push back. And um, I, I, um, I, I admire what the overall um, delivery, delivery from Voice of America is. And uh, it may be something that Americans don't know about, but people certainly know about it in, in Poland, know about it uh, in um, sub-Saharan Africa and feel that this has been a, tremendous a tremendously important part of uh, their lives. And it's quite moving to hear people uh, around the world talk about how much it meant to them to have news, information, uh, cultural material being provided uh, by the United States, but it, there was a continual battle to keep that as a um, uh, objective and uh, bipartisan uh, in, initiative. And there are there are struggles right now um, with uh, over how's what's the best way to run uh, U.S. international broadcasting. And Prof, can you explain to us? You've done a great job outlining public diplomacy what its connection is to the idea of soft power associated often with Joe Nye and yes. who was or is a very distinguished political science, international relations professor, and was of course a senior administrator in the state department under Clinton as in William J. Clinton. So well, soft power and public diplomacy, how do they connect? Well, the first thing to say is that they're not the same thing. Um, I think that uh, it's, it's, but this is a subject that's widely misunderstood. So the point of soft power is it 
the concept recognizes the way in which a country that is admired for its culture and values can do more in international relations. So it's able to set agendas, it's able to influence people to get more things go its or disproportionately go its way than if it isn't admired. And uh, but extending from soft power, then uh, a country would say, well, how can I increase admiration of my country? How can I increase knowledge of my values and culture? And public diplomacy is seen as the obvious tool for uh, uh, increasing soft power. So after uh, Joseph Nye invented the term soft power in uh, 1990, the U.S. Information Agency immediately began describing itself as uh, America's soft power tool. Right. So a mechanism for building soft power. The problem with soft power is a problem that comes from its success, is it's now understood and pursued by many countries in the world, including Russia, China, India, United States, all believe in building their soft power. But if we look closely, they have a different idea about what soft power is. India uh, sees it in terms of historic culture. Uh, China thinks about soft power in a transactional way. So you become uh, connected into Chinese soft power by uh, joining the Belt and Road Initiative, taking uh, low interest loans from China. And for Russia, um, soft power is about asserting their conservative agenda and uh, clamping down on LGBT values, which, uh, you know, the that they see as being um uh, virtuous, and of course, that's the very opposite of what Britain and the United States are doing in with their soft power outreach, where they're speaking up for and uh, endorsing um, uh, the rights of sexual minorities. And um, so, to me, we have a, we're at a crisis in understanding soft power. I think part of the problem is soft power has come to be understood in terms of. What extra can we do to make our country just that little bit more popular? So or get a few more tourists, a few more uh, trade bucks. So the largest countries in the world are interested in soft power. And in fact, the soft power measurement indices that are out there often only look at the most successful countries. So you have a thing called the soft power 30 that examines the 30 top countries. The Nation Brands Index looks at 50 or, or 60 uh, countries and to see how, how admired are they. I think that for a category of international relations to be meaningful, it needs to work in every place and in every time. So I want something that I can go to the history book with and say, yes, there you can see this dynamic at work. And I want something that I can go anywhere in the world, talk to a, 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 a political figure or a, a diplomat, and they will recognize what it is I'm saying. And, and so I've backed away from soft power and now talk about reputation and a concept that I call reputational security. So what reputational security is, is a 
an idea that your reputation is not just a little optional extra. It could be what saves you in a time of crisis. And a good example of a, a country that had no reputational security and then was able to enhance itself uh, is um, Ukraine. So in 2014, Ukraine's uh, had very little. Uh, it was it wasn't really known uh, in in the Western world. People didn't know Ukrainian culture. They didn't even know uh, how to pronounce the name of the country or the name of the uh, cities in the country. Um, and they lost the province when when Putin attacked um, the heavens didn't darken. Uh, companies didn't say, oh, how can we keep trading with Russia? Everything was pretty much business as usual. Something had changed by 2022. Ukraine was suddenly well known. People you, you had different ways of writing the principal cities. Nobody mistakenly called it the Ukraine using a traditional Russian formulation. Uh, people were aware about Ukrainian culture and the and had learned to think of it as a slightly uh, uh, think of it as an as a as a proper nation as uh, not as a a, a breakaway uh, province of the the Soviet Union but to see it in its own terms and so I think that Ukraine went from lacking reputational security to having acquired a degree of security that came from its reputation. And this enabled uh, arms to flow more quickly to Ukraine. It meant that citizens put pressure on corporations to boycott uh, Russia, not to trade with Russia. 1,000 companies felt compelled to cease trading or change operations in on Russian soil. And part of this process was culture. Ukraine had made its culture uh, much more known between 2014 and 2022. So to me, that's the change. This is where you can see reputational security. The the other experiences that put me onto reputational security as an idea, and I now have a book out called Reputational Security. The other things that turned me onto reputational security was talking to um, diplomats in Kazakhstan, where they could see that anything that put Kazakhstan on the agenda was helping them because they were terrified by the experience of Ukraine. And to be honest, you can guess what comes next. They could see that Borat was actually insulating them from the worst thing in international relations, which is nobody knows anything about you at all. And so they'd come to realize that even a comedian making jokes about them was a... Uh, was a benefit. Now, Prof, that answers in a way my next question, which is one of scale in terms of this reputational security issue. If one looks at the history of international relations, not in the pitiful, scientific US school that has failed at everything it's done, except adding up nuclear tonnage, but instead looks at it from the regrettably more sophisticated British school, Martin White, Hedley Bull, and all those historians and philosophers, which is arrogant and silly, but actually gets things right. Uh, per Macmillan, events, dear boy, and Arm and Parley, and mm -hmm. all those things that sadly people like Nive never learnt. But uh, how much does it matter 
if, and here, this is to use US ideas, you have a realist theory of international relations, which says, if you've got lots of guns and lots of money and big corporations and hundreds of millions of bodies you're prepared to sacrifice, that's how you get your way in the world. And culture is the, the icing on the cake. If you're little, then culture is more important because it's a way of getting noticed in the, in the form that you suggest. But that really, this can never be a, a thing of massive import to the big, the places with huge populations and large wealth. Well, this is where I would come at it as a historian. And my experience has been that reputation is incredibly important in a crisis and in these near misses, close run things and the opportunities, the, the moments when everything has to be brought to bear. So if you are head to head with somebody, if you're engaged in a showdown, you need your reputation to be as good as it can be. And what I found is that a wise government understands that a good reputation doesn't just come from a good image or telling a good story. It also comes from a good reality. And I became very interested in, in moments in American history where U.S. public, U.S. Uh, diplomacy, U.S. foreign policy has required domestic reform because a part of the problem with soft power is people think all I need to do is put out, well, basically put out more flags or show more movies. Um, and I'd say, no, what you, the, the history of reputational security shows that if people are saying in their propaganda about you that you are a racist, you need to be less racist. And this was the, the, the decision, this was the perception of President Eisenhower, which he passed on to President Kennedy, that the best way of defeating communist Russian propaganda, Soviet propaganda focused on American racism, was to be less racist, not just to send Dizzy Gillespie on a world tour and say, hey, look, we love Dizzy, but it was also to say, no, we're going to diminish the levels of racism in America. Similarly, when Lyndon Johnson was accused of having a racist immigration policy, which excluded Asian people, Johnson realized he was going to have to change the policy. When Jimmy Carter was called a hypocrite for supporting governments with bad human rights records, he had to change the uh, American government's attitude to human rights and take it into consideration in making foreign policy. He didn't do it terribly well or thoroughly, but at least it's an attempt to shift policy. And there was an old American public diplomat who, who put it to me like this. He, people would ask him during the Vietnam War which theory of international relations he uh, ascribed to, which doctrine. Did he follow the Rostow doctrine or McNamara doctrine or, or the Truman doctrine? Which, and he said he followed the Mercer doctrine. And they would look very puzzled and say, Mercer, which Mercer? And he'd say, wait, Johnny Mercer, of course. <laughs> You've got to accentuate the positives, <laughs> eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative. But, I so don't know where the metaphor for don't mess with Mr. In-between is. But the point is of this metaphor is that you accentuate what's actually positive, but you have to eliminate the negative, not just the negative from your 
um, uh, from information about you, but the negative reality. So actually take away, diminish the negatives. And this, I can find evidence for this right through the history of foreign policy, countries that have decided things are so critical, we have to change reality, not just our rhetoric. And this applies whether you're a superpower or a small state. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and you can see it right now uh, um, with um, uh, uh, countries uh, deciding they need to adjust something that's out of step with international taste or or, uh, which makes them uh, look um, bad. Uh, A good example would be uh, China around about 1900 when it decided um, that it would eliminate the practice of binding women's feet, which had been part of Chinese life for thousands of years. Um, they did, they eliminated it in a 20-year period, because not because it was bad for women, but because it was bad for the image of, of China. And maybe this is the negative problem with people reforming based on foreign policy and image concerns, is that sometimes it means you're doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason. And it means we still have to say, well, remember what the right reason is and let's have less racism for domestic policy reasons, not just foreign policy reasons. Let's have better condition for women in China for domestic policy reasons, uh, not just foreign policy reasons. Uh, and there are, there are other examples like this where you see this uh, reform for uh, the wrong reason. And how does this relate... I'm glad the reforms happened, but um, uh, the, uh, the the logic has to be extended to keep the, the thing rolling. And perhaps that explains why uh, you have this great initiative in terms of anti-racism in America, which then draws to a, a stop and doesn't follow through uh, as it should have done into the uh, 70s and 80s. Um, and we now live with the consequences of that. And how does this relate to the recrudescence, if there, if that is the right term, of nationalism, the hyper-nationalism in Western Europe, but also in Eastern and Central Europe, and the renewed isolationism of sure. the 40% of people in the United States deluded enough to vote for you-know-what? <laughs> yes, well... Um... But I, I think that the uh, the you know, nationalism and the uh, populism these are are symptoms of coincidental crises, and it's very interesting and alarming to me that we have the coincidence of an economic crisis uh, in two thousand eight. Uh, which no one can dodge or really fix. And it happens at the same time that there's a media crisis and you have the availability of social media on an unprecedented scale and without the kind of media antibodies, if you like, the skepticism that people evolve when they're used to dealing with a medium. So, you know, like when we were kids and Gran would say, oh, you can't believe everything you read in the papers, dear. You know, that's actually a lesson in media literacy. Um, But Granny wasn't telling us about TikTok or Twitter 
uh, and people didn't know how to differentiate between these messages. They were treating messages as of equal value when they were coming from very different sources with very different intents. So I see populism as being a, a kind of like a panic response made possible by the media the media destabilization uh, but responding to the global economic crisis and i see it as a very very dangerous moment in fact well, there's a chapter in my new book where i go back through the great crises of the past and i find that they were also uh, media crises so nobody but we don't we don't call them the the we call them by geographical names so hitler's or 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 personality names hitler's war the kaiser's war uh we don't talk about the war that the popular press made which is i think part of the story of the origin of world war 1 we don't talk about the war made possible by radio and newsreel which i think is essential to the story of the origin of world war 2 you don't have to take my word for it. Goebbels says in his famous radio, uh, was it re- the you know radio festival speech? Uh, without the radio, without um, the um, uh, you know without the radio, there could be no victory for national socialism. So he himself sees this new medium as being essential to his deception and manipulation of the population of of Germany. So I think we have to take the current. Uh, disruption of our media space very, very seriously. Uh, because World War I, World War II, Cold War, at their outset, are all tied to media disruption. The good part is, the happy part, or, or optim- the hopeful part, rather, is that the solution to these problems included people learning to deal with media. So you can see how at the end of World War II, we get UNESCO trying to uh, increase um, knowledge of, of, of one another, building defenses against war in the imagination of, of the global community. At the end of the Cold War, um, there, was, there were negotiations to bring better understanding between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, even uh, correcting each other's textbooks. And there's a whole forgotten history of media disarmament. Uh, that was just lost when the Soviet economy collapsed. Um, but a lot of hard work went into a business of mutual understanding. And to me, if we want to move to a better, more stable world, we need to get back into cultural disarmament and media disarmament. I'm thinking particularly of talking to uh, China about culture and about what we understand about each other, because it doesn't seem to be a stable world in which they know everything about us and we know next to nothing about about them. That seems to me to be asking for trouble. And, of course, related to that is intense nationalism on both sides. <laughs> sure. Uh, but I think the nationalism is, is made worse by an awareness on the part of China that um, America or the United States isn't particularly interested in them. You know, they, they pay such a close attention to the US and get nothing in return. And it's like, um, uh, you know, almost like high school, you know, where the most painful thing you can do to somebody is ignore them. Uh, and 
you know, we know the consequences of, of that. It's just human emotions. Are, um, and maybe this is where I have an argument with IR is I see a, a complete connection be- between how people are to each other interpersonally and how countries treat each other and what works interpersonally and what works between countries seems to me to be uh, overlap more often than it diverges. Doesn't that assume that there is a happy Whiggish tendency in the world towards cultural relativism, accepting differences, accepting agonistic relations, but in civilized and kind ways? Probably. Is, that, is there evidence for that? Probably, but what I'd like people to do, Toby, is read my book and then prove to me why I'm wrong. <laughs> that would be it. That's my challenge. That's my challenge. But I have a, you know, I do have an optimistic, uh, even in the midst of all the worry about the environment and a world disrupted by social media and propaganda, that when you get two people in a room, they can work things out. And it's possible when people share interests to find tremendous commonalities that are over and above the difference of nation and the difference of uh, religion and uh, difference of, of, of language. And finding those, those things that we share, including our intellectual interests, can help to stabilize the international environment, to insulate it from the great blows and shocks and waves and, and um, uh, disruptions that are coming our way at the moment. Well, this is really a post-Congress of Vienna faith in diplomacy, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think you're you're right. You're right. But I I certainly have faith in the. I have faith in diplomacy. I have faith in diplomats, and I have faith in the ability of people to connect on a peer-to-peer experience, and that sense of connection i think has the power to um to well to talk about saving us i to, to me that's w- what would save us is realizing what we share with each other to so that uh we have ultimately more in common than divide us um but we have to restrain people in our own societies who will always exploit divisions for their own gain. And people are selling different things, but there's certainly a lot of people with vested interests in the arguments going further, you know, political careers, economic careers. Um, we have, but we have to restrain our own societies as well as restraining uh, those uh, hostile to us. Prof, I've got a couple more questions for you. And then I'd like to throw it to you to subtract from or add to what we've already discussed. Okay. So my first question is to ask you, as an historian, self-declared, how do you do what you do? How do you find shit out? Right. Well, that's interesting. I'm evidence-driven. so. I love archives. I love old films. I love archives that explain old films. And I love talking to people. And so 
At the moment, I'm writing a new book about South Africa and the anti-apartheid movement. And I've gone to South Africa, tracked down people who were involved in the struggle against apartheid and the struggle to retain apartheid. And I've learned so much from moving between the archives and the people, because sometimes the people will give you their memories will give you uh, an explanation of what's in the archive. It'll also tell you the next archive you need to go to, to, to follow up. And there have been some amazing, uh, I've got so many amazing stories that have come out of that experience. And I think that part of my method is to sub, um, subsume myself totally in whatever it is that I'm writing about. And I remain in touch with many of the people I've uh, I've interviewed in these projects. They become friends uh, or acquaintances or, or people that I can keep comparing notes with. So um, uh, it's exhausting, but I hope it gets results. But that's how I work. Thank you. That's very illuminating and I think inspiring probably for oh, it's nice of you to say many, so. many people. Yeah, yeah. And so my last question prior to turning things over to you, Prof Nicholas, Prof Nick, is I'm a bright eyed, bushy tailed grad student arriving at the University of Summer Construction, spoiled children, <laughs> suicidal cycling peoples. Yes. And I knock on your door and I say, Prof C, I am worried about cultural and media imperialism. Right. Should I be worried? Well, I think that um, what's an interesting, uh, you know, I teach, a, I have a, a, a session on uh, cultural imperialism because I think that, that, um, people who work in American diplomacy and some of my students go to become American cultural and public diplomats need to understand what it feels like to have another person's culture channeled to you. Mm. Um, I think we need to understand the discussion around cultural imperialism to guard against it. Uh, so to avoid cultural imperialism, um, and to um, listen. So to me, public diplomacy begins with listening, and it isn't much fun to listen to discussions about things that you are doing wrong or that your country has done wrong in the past. Um, and I think this is an... Uh, so I do think cultural imperialism is a is a issue we have to take very seriously. But I'm, uh, I am also aware that not all discussion of cultural imperialism is based on a genuine concern for the damage that outside information, outside culture does in a country. It's also a backdoor to uh, censorship where you say, oh, this uh, the BBC is undermining my ability to um, you know, to give the people the news in my country as I see it. Um, so not every anti uh, anti imperialist in the field of culture is our friend, and we need to have a a, a clear eye when looking at the debate around um, cultural imperialism. 
however, you can be sure that my students are made aware of UNESCO's um, uh, rules around um, the, the right to protect your cultural market and uh, the United States insisting that it has a right to uh, give unlimited motion pictures everywhere in the world. So this is a this is a um, a problematic that that the students wrestle with and are, are very aware of. And finally, Prof, just as I said, to ask whether there are things you'd like to add to our discussion. Well, I've enjoyed the discussion very much. It's amazing how we were able to get into uh, such a wide range of uh, issues. Um, what I, I think I would love, well, I maybe just to finish off, I'll say that, that the questions that I'm thinking about right now um, and where you might have a, uh, a view, I'm interested in not just an image. We think, think of an image as a fixed thing, but when an image becomes a narrative, we project it into the future uh, because we imagine we're living in the middle of a story and that story has an ending and i wonder how right now we're thinking about national trajectories national narratives our audiences around the world perceiving endings and whose endings are the most powerful and whose endings are we discussing one of my boys are i have three sons all of them are boy scouts and one of the boy scouts thought it would be amusing to look me up on Wikipedia. And he read something about reputational security. And he asked me, how does reputational security fit with the idea of plot armor that you have in anime criticism? Is reputational security like plot armor for countries? And it's when a Boy Scout asks you a question that you don't know the answer to. It's actually a very interesting moment. And so I'm still thinking about this question from this uh, this Boy Scout about is it possible for a country to be protected in the same way as a, a, a character in a, a fiction? Do we perceive countries as having the equivalent of the of the plot armor that means that you you uh, assume that the hero will um, uh, be, still be alive when the final credits start to roll. And um, I'm turning that round and round in my mind at the moment. And it's, uh, uh, I, I suspect that that'll be where the, next, where the next book or the book after the South Africa book comes from will be this, uh, this question of, of how do narratives protect us and which countries have been up till now protected by their narratives. Sounds as though the Boy Scouts have been reading Soviet narratology. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yes, I wouldn't be surprised. So thank you, Nick Cull, for a wonderful conversation. It's always terrific to speak to you and always oh, great thanks, to Andy. learn from your work. I really appreciate it. Oh, I've had a, the best time and I really appreciate you asking me on to the program.